0: Pretty rough seas for shares of Carnival today. We see the stock uh, selling off, Uh, in fact, falling the most in more than six years. Stock right now down 7.1% after the company cut its full-year earnings outlook, citing headwinds that are rippling throughout the cruise line industry. Ivan Feinseth has a buy on the stock. He's ranked, by the way, second by the Bloomberg Absolute Return Ranking, highlighting analysts whose recommendations produce the best total returns based solely on the performance of the security of the past year. A lot of words, which... Basically means Ivan gets it right. He's managing director and chief investment officer at Tigris Financial Partners, on the phone in New York. Hello there. How are you? I'm well. Uh, Carnival shares. What happened? I mean, we just talked to Arnold Donald. Uh, what about a month or so ago? Um, I don't remember feeling that there was you know too much nervousness about the outlook. What happened?
2: Well, it's a little shocking. They reported a strong quarter. Yeah. Yet they gave lower guidance. Due to um, fuel prices and FX headwinds, but then they said that would be offset by strong demand, which to me would have eliminated the you know lower guidance. So it is confusing. Overall, the, the demand in the cruise industry remains strong. The the very stru- strong com- consumer yeah. is continuing to spend more on travel, and uh, the cruise industry continues to gain in the overall travel industry because cruises offer the best value for your travel dollar and have a tax advantage Uh, for example hotel rooms in major cities have 20 to 30 percent um you know room taxes and local taxes where um you know just cruise trips have just uh, regular sales tax
0: yeah it's interesting i mean i i think they just uh you know put out a new ship uh, they sound pretty upbeat, so I'm a little confused. And I I wonder if, you know, Ivan, we've been trying to make sense of this because of all of the trade talk, escalating trade tensions that are out there and some other issues, whether or not we're going to see companies kind of, I don't know, you know, take this opportunity to say, well, maybe things aren't so good, um, to kind of take advantage of the environment. And I just, I'm curious, as you dig a little bit deeper into Carnival, I don't know if you, have you talked to the company at all, uh, you know, as to I, I was what's on yeah.
2: carnivals. I was on carnivals, uh, conference call today. I was at the investor meeting on the uh, debut of their new Horizon yeah. uh, back in May. Right. I was also on the debut of um, Norwegian's new uh, ship, the Bliss. Right. So uh, demand, uh, you know, remains strong. I think yeah. I have a strong buy on Norwegian, a buy on Carnival, and a buy on Royal, and I think that. Uh, They have really a huge opportunity ahead of them, so I'm surprised uh, in the weakness. Also, they really have no effect. uh, The tariffs have no effect on them.
0: All right. We'll have to see how maybe it plays out throughout the week. Ivan, we got to run. Really appreciate always your insight. Ivan Feinseth over at Tigris Financial Partners. everybody among our most read stories on the bloomberg we talked about it a little bit earlier their iconic motorcycle company harley davidson announcing plans to close a u.s factory built one in thailand following moves by president trump on trade let's talk to jamie butters he's our u.s autos editor at bloomberg news he joins us from our bureau our detroit bureau jamie um is this done is this official they're gonna do it
3: well that's the <laughs> I'm sorry, excuse Oops, me. You okay? Uh that is the plan at the moment. Uh, there, there is the chance that some sort of uh you know, trade truce could be worked out uh quickly, perhaps. And uh if if, if Europe took those tariffs off, maybe Harley Davidson would uh reconsider this move. But we just got a statement from the uh machinist union they are very frustrated and feel like this was uh an opportunistic uh, move by the company to keep m- taking jobs overseas as fast as they can. You know, so it's, it's always complicated, yeah, right?
0: Right, exactly. Right. We were, we've all been trying to figure out like the Daimler, Daimler headline that came out, um, was it last week too, that whether or not mm-hmm. companies are taking advantage of kind of the environment. I'm not saying they are, but just whether or not they're taking advantage of kind of the environment that we're in um, to make some business changes because they want to, and they can, they can use those big macro stories, whether it's trade or something else, uh, to right. do it.
3: I mean, I think the way I look at it, I mean, I, the Daimler one is a little tricky because they are so opaque about how many SUVs they ship from Alabama yeah. to China. And so it's, it's really unclear, and, and they were facing some other headwinds. Uh, you know Harley. I feel uh, at least has been—they're pretty explicit about the cost. Uh, you know, two thousand dollars, twenty-two hundred dollars per bike, yeah. and they sell forty thousand bikes a year in Europe um, now. And I believe that those all come from the U.S. at this point. Maybe that was always the plan to make them in Thailand or someplace else. Mm-hmm. So there, there could be a little bit of fuzziness, but it—it it seems like a legitimate. Uh, thing to have to deal with
4: yeah yeah <laughs> uh, right so, right. So
3: it is a significant tariff that they have to deal with in some way and you know, whether they really need to do all this or as you said with your first question whether they really have to follow through you know we'll have to see but they're certainly planning on it
0: jamie are there unions involved with harley
3: yes harley's u.s plants uh are represented by two unions it's a little complicated uh but they have both the uh, machinist union and the steel workers union in uh in their factories they have uh Still make bikes in Milwaukee where they're headquartered. They're closing the factory in Kansas City and adding a little bit of that capacity to their York, Pennsylvania plant. Uh, but they're all uh, union represented and um Very agitated about it. So,
0: help me out here, Jamie, because you know the auto industry so well. We know that there's a global supply chain, right? We certainly see it between, excuse me, Canada, US, and Mexico. But I am curious that we do see, like just last week, right? We had the Volvo plant that opened in South Carolina. And that's supposed to be, from what I understand, and you're great reporting, um, that it's going to be a plant, you know, largely for export. I mean, what are auto manufacturers, vehicle makers in general, are they? Putting plants in the market that they're going to be selling in, is that what we're more seeing in terms of a trend or no? We we see everything kind of moving around the world. You might manufacture in one market and then sell elsewhere.
3: Yeah, it's uh it's really it's it's complicated and hopefully I mean, there's the thing. Those automakers have already been for the last couple of decades really since Toyota, Nissan and Honda came to the US, it's been sort of the mantra to build where you sell. Right. But they have, you know, look at any any brand, call of any brand on, the, on your on your website, and you see all the vehicles they make. I mean, they'll, they try to make about the same number of vehicles in key markets that they sell, or get mm-hmm. at least, you know, within striking distance, but the exact mix of them, you know, no way, right? So if, yeah. uh, Volvo is going to try to make 150,000 vehicles in the U.S. That'd be a great sales number for them here, hmm. but they want to ship at least half of those out so that they're only making one or two models very efficiently and right. then distributing them all over the world. And that's, it is a microcosm of everything, you know, the way that the global supply chain works. And uh if all these national borders start adding big taxes on them, it's going to be very costly for consumers all over the world and for the companies trying to sell them products.
0: Well, certainly a swift action by Harley. Um, Jamie, thank you so much. Jamie Butters, he's our U.S. Autos editor at Bloomberg News, uh, joining us from our Detroit Bureau. By the way, Harley operates manufacturing facilities in Brazil, India and Australia, and then, as we mentioned, beginning production in Thailand this year. One of the other stories we're following, again, a company story, and this has to do with uh, Toys R Us and a former CEO. CEO. Love this story. Um, Let's get into it with Matt Townsend. He's our (laughs) Bloomberg News global business reporter. I was going to call you our global business reporter, but that's (laughs) not going to work. Hey, Matt. um, First of all, we're talking about Jerry Storch, former CEO. When was he there?
5: He was there uh, early 2006 to early 2013, so seven years. Uh, He was the guy they brought in, uh, the private equity firms, Bain Capital, KKR, brought in to run the company after they took it private so, he was there a long time.
0: Yeah, long time. So, what is? I'm almost like, wow, another chapter to this story. I know. Just when we thought it was kind of maybe uh, closing up, what exactly does he want to do?
5: Well, he's you know basically interested in saving uh, whatever he can of the company. Um, you know, we had heard that his name mentioned earlier in the year when the when the company um, which went into bankruptcy in September and then it ultimately ended up. Uh, announcing that it would uh, liquidate its assets in the U.S. in uh, March, that he had been sort of in talks with some investors, but now we know that, you know, he's making a more formal, uh, concerted effort. Uh, He's working with Credit Suisse as a financial advisor, talking to different hedge funds and venture capital funds. Um, And basically, he wants to save, um, you know, according to our reporting, several hundred stores. Um from the from the from that with the Toys R Us brand and the Babies R Us brand included. Um as a way to, you know, maybe breathe some life into the company and keep it a going concern or at least part of it.
0: It's wild. First of all, TikTok, right? I already had a guest on who was talking about back-to-school sales, retail sales. Uh, Christmas, these guys, you know, have to get their Christmas strategy. I mean, you know, probably better than I do, I don't know, a year before, six months before, you know, in order to make sure they're ready for the Christmas selling market. Um, If indeed he can do what he wants to do, will he even be ready for the holiday?
5: Yeah, that that, that seems like a long shot. I mean, you know, this whole thing kind of seems like a long shot, to be honest. But yeah. you know, he is making this play. He's trying to do something. Uh, but yeah, having some sort of Toys R Us presence for this holiday season, which you know starts in basically right after Halloween, is the, when the selling season really starts for the holidays. And we're almost at the beginning of July. Uh, not a lot of time. So maybe this is a case where, you know, Storch and his group buys up the intellectual property, the brand mm-hmm. names, and maybe they don't get it open for this Christmas, but they do something for next year.
0: Hey, Matt, how much of this is about a brick-and-mortar play? How much of this is ultimately an online play? Which, which, as you guys know, and you guys have reported, you know, Toys R Us kind of gave away its online strategy early on to Amazon.
5: Right. Uh, it is very much a, a look at doing a brick-and-mortar, you know, have physical locations. Um, the website would be included in that. But, you know, the big, the big thing with Toys R Us was that, you know, people who watched this company for a long time, many thought that there was a viable business here, just had too much debt, that there is still a need and demand for a toy store-type presence in U.S. shopping centers, um, And that's what, you know, we'll see if that plays out. I mean, I had another story earlier today about uh, Party City, that they're doing some toy pop-up stores, about 50 of them for the holidays. So there's a lot of companies trying to figure out how you fill this hole and go after the market share left by Toys R Us going away.
0: And it's not just about Toys R Us, right? It's about Mattel and Hasbro, right? This is where these guys sell so much of their stuff. So uh, there's other companies at play.
5: Yeah, all the big toy makers, um, and and the small ones, too. Toys R Us was a big customer. Um, You know, the the big guys, Hasbro and Mattel, they, they can probably take this hit better than smaller companies, so there's a lot of... Concern about some of the smaller toy makers, um I mean, not even the public ones, just ones maybe never heard of really, but that could go out of business or be consolidated because of this.
0: Hey, just got about uh, 20 seconds left here. Yeah. I know this is, you know, you guys are doing this reporting. Will we get some kind of confirmation about what he's going to do this week just quickly?
5: Uh, No, this should play out over the next month. The auction for the assets they want to buy, the brand names, is sometime in late July, early August. So that'll be when we'll know more. Um, But, yeah, so uh, wait and see, I guess, the best answer.
0: Nice to see Jeffrey the Giraffe maybe come back. I'm just saying. All right, Matt Townsend, thank you so much. Bloomberg News Global Business Reporter joining us uh, on the phone. (laughs) So, no doubt about it, the healthcare sector getting a shot in the arm, feeling maybe mm, not so good, actually, earlier this year when three heavyweights announced plans to work together in providing care for its workers. Here to talk about the new market reality in healthcare, Susan DeVore. She is Chief Executive Officer at the Healthcare Services Company, Premier, a publicly held company, uh, $4.8 billion in market cap, up about 24% this year. She joins us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina, where the company is based. Susan, nice to have you here. When I talk about the shot in the arm, I'm talking about... About Buffett, Bezos, and Diamond saying we can do this better in terms of healthcare delivery uh, for our employees. Tell us what you see as a new kind of healthcare market
1: reality. Thanks, Carol. I think the new healthcare market reality is that employers are getting directly involved and they're going directly to providers. I think, you know, when Atul Gawande talks about removing middlemen and going direct to the physicians, the healthcare systems to try to get the waste out and to try to improve the clinical outcomes and the experience for their patients, I think they're, they are a couple of employers in addition to others that have realized they just have to go Directly at the system,
0: and Atul Gawande, of course, is the doctor that Mr. Buffett, Mr. Bezos, and Mr. Diamond have appointed as the CEO of their newly formed healthcare company. Are you getting calls from? Well, who do you normally work with? Let, let, let's just like explain it to our audience. You, who are typically your clients?
1: Yeah, so Premier is actually was organized by providers, healthcare systems. Mm-hmm. So we basically serve 76% of the healthcare hospitals and systems across the country and 150,000 providers, which would include physicians and nursing homes and you know, uh, surgery centers, those kinds of things. So we're directly inside the healthcare system trying to improve the quality, the safety, the outcomes, the cost of the healthcare delivery system.
0: All right. So, how do you see this? Is this what, uh, you know, that trifecta are looking to do? Is that a threat to what you guys do, or do you think you're going to be working alongside with them? Maybe you are already.
1: Yeah, I think we can work alongside them. I think several of our healthcare systems today have direct contracts with employers mm-hmm. and premier is all about measuring quality and safety and waste and outcomes. And so we know a tool, we know the folks in his in his organization and we think we can be a national data set, benchmark, performance improvement collaborator with them. And we think we can bring this network of providers, not only to them, but to other employers.
0: Hey, Susan, how do we, though, I hear more and more from doctors and folks within the healthcare industry that we need to get to a point where it's about more and more of managing people, keeping them healthy so that they don't have to go to the hospital, they don't have to go to the emergency room. And I listened to what you're saying about performance improvement, and data can certainly help us get to that point. I was just reading a story about AI, you know, in terms of, you know, preventing people from getting to those healthcare care crisis situations. Um, so what's the balance that we kind of maybe move towards that kind of model and using information that perhaps you provide in others rather than, I don't know,
1: something different? I mean, is that you the know, answer? Is that how you guys see it? Uh, that is how we see it. And I think that actually we have to do both things. We have to use the data we have, we have to use the providers we have, and we have to improve their performance today because there is waste, there is misdiagnosis, there are, you know, safety issues, quality issues. At the same time, we now have genomic data, we know the socioeconomics, we have AI, we can predict who's going to get illnesses and try to manage them earlier. And I think actually what employers are trying to do is actually intervene on both sides of this equation. And I think that, and we at Premier think that's the right answer.
0: That's interesting. Um, Talk to me a little bit about drug pricing. That is such a big part of the healthcare costs today. Um, Are we making any progress? Doesn't kind of feel that way.
1: You know, I think the drug blueprint. Is mm-hmm. headed in the right direction, so I think. Um, what is Dr. the drug? What is the drug blueprint? That's yeah. Trump's. That's Trump's plan for improving drug pricing and competition overall. Um, I think that. Dr. Gottlieb running the FDA, speeding up the FDA to get more drugs to market, more generics to market. We need more competition. We need to get rid of some of the loopholes that slow down getting new competitors to market. And I think several components of Trump and Alex Azar's um, drug blueprint start to move us in that direction. This is a very complicated part of the healthcare system. It's not going to be easy to to fix, but I think the three or four major activities are headed in the right direction. So, where do you
0: see, you know, I am curious to see if there's a longer lasting impact from Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon getting together to try and make, you know, a better healthcare system certainly for their employees. Where do you see it all going? I don't know. How might it be different? Um, in terms of healthcare, I don't know. I don't even know what the right time frame is anymore. Is it three years? Is it five years? I feel like do, things are often moving a lot more quickly, and in some ways, they're moving a lot more slowly.
1: Well, I think we have more data, more technology, more artificial intelligence, more ability to um, take broad sets of data and information and and get more insights out of them. So I think that's that's better than it has ever been. I think we still have though a very fragmented healthcare system. We need to move forward these these new models, these advanced payment models that actually put providers at risk for the clinical outcomes in the financial outcomes. And then insurance companies become insurance companies, you know, claims management companies. But, but providers yeah. have to change the way care is delivered. Um, what about the
0: legal side of everything? And the, often you see, you know, a lot of lawsuits, and, and that certainly has driven up the costs, too, of health care.
1: Yeah, you know, I think there have been a variety of attempts with tort reform and other things to sort of limit the liability, and so so people aren't overusing and over-diagnosing um, just to protect themselves legally. Mm-hmm. But if you look at all of it and all of the waste in the system and the quality, safety, and total cost variation issues, the legal side of it is probably less than 10 percent of the problem. Ah, So, yes, I think it's a problem, but I don't think it's the biggest opportunity for improvement.
0: All right. Susan, nice to get some time with you. Susan DeVore, she's chief executive officer at Premier. They're based in Charlotte, North Carolina, as I mentioned. It's a $4.8 billion market cap company, up about 24 percent so far this year. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Master in our Bloomberg 1130 studio and this is Bloomberg.
3: I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, how
5: about you let me drive?
2: Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, Just drive baby.
0: It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us and from the West Coast, Alan Zaffron, Senior Managing Director and Wealth Manager at First Republic Private Wealth Management. $113 billion in assets under management. Alan, as I mentioned, uh, joining us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Alan, good to have you here. Uh, you know, last week we spent the whole week saying, eh, the trade stuff, it's just talk, back and forth, back and forth. Now it feels like things are getting a little bit more real. How do you see it?
4: Uh, Carol, thanks for having me on the show. The way I see it is I I see that this is going to last for a while. I mean, you know, I think the common assumption about the whole trade wars is for Trump, it's it's either about politics or it's about posturing. And what I'd tell you is I'm not sure either works. If you say this whole trade session is about politics – uh, the Trump administration already turned down what was basically a concession from China. They were going to make a concession offered by about $70 billion of U.S. goods, and the U.S. turned that down. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's about getting a, a quick trade. And you could say it's just posturing, but I think Trump agrees with the hardliners he put into his administration. I think, in essence, he's been arguing that China hollowed out the American manufacturing base, and he thinks the mere existence of our big trade deficit means the U.S. can't really lose a trade war. So I, I, I'm not sure cooler heads can't prevail. I think that inevitably happens. But I think we need to be prepared for a bit of um, a discount on multiples until such time as things settle out. I think this could be a a trade fight with genuine economic consequences that could well take the balance of the latter half of the year till the midterm elections potentially to resolve.
0: Hey, and we've been to some extent, stressing what's going on with the Nasdaq today, it's down about 162 points, down two point about two percent here. But I feel like it makes sense that that average is taking a little bit more of a hit, certainly on a percentage basis, because those are the names that we've really seen run up this year.
4: I, I concur, and also bear in mind, tech stocks and especially semiconductor stocks are the ones that really mm-hmm. get caught with exposure to Chinese investments. So some combination of targeting. Industries and sectors that have significant exposure, particularly to the China, or those sectors are going to get hit in the short run. I will give you one ironic twist of all this. Mm-hmm. I'm still what I'll call guardedly or optimistic bullish. I believe all of this noise just keeps the economies from overheating enough and doesn't fall, keep, make them into, put them into recession such that we are going to be in an even longer lasting, slow grow economic environment globally which perpetuates the equity bull market we've seen. I don't think it's all negative. I could give you the positive spin, which is effectively interest rates can't go up too fast. Mm -hmm. Inflation won't be too cumbersome. And it will actually perpetuate the equity bull market we've seen. It will make it last longer.
0: It's a really funny environment. I kind of was thinking the same thing that I thought, this market is very quick to kind of smack down things and take any fluff out. Um, Just enough you know, to, get, to keep it from getting too overheated. And I have thought about the same thing, that, okay, what does this mean for Fed policy? Do they, are they a little bit more careful um, or, or not as aggressive? And so what that does to maybe keeping this momentum going, right?
4: Uh, that's entirely yeah. how I see it. And, and yeah. in fact, we've been so conditioned to great times economically in the bull market for particularly the last two and a half years recognize that we're just exactly in the middle between the peak and the valley in the last 12 months. If you look at where the S&P 500 is trading literally today, even with the downdraft, yeah. you're only down about 5% from your peak, and you're up about 6% from where it was in a bottom in February. You're just in a range. And that's the same with interest rates. The 10-year treasury, we began the year at about 244. We got up to 311. We're back at 288. Right. We're right in the middle. We're just in a range right now till this you, all sorts out.
0: You know, Alan, we had um, a guest, I don't know, Paul Brennan, I'm asking our, our producer, was it a week or two ago? Um, and she said, I think that the move up in stocks just really started – In 2016, I think she said that she says this bull market is only a couple years old, saying that that's when things started to kind of get closer to normal, if you will, and that everything that preceded that was kind of crazy because we were coming off the crisis, dealing with the crisis, trying to make things, you know, prevent the floor from falling out. And so her thought was, we're just going to keep going.
2: Well,
4: you know, semantics is everything. If you actually go back and look – We had a peak to valley drop of 19% in the markets that technically didn't constitute a 20% drop. That was in 2011. Mm -hmm. And we had two 15% drops from August to October of 2015 and from late December to uh, early February of 2016, which, if you really lumped them together, were kind of another uh, bear market. But but because it wasn't technically a 20% drop, it didn't count, and suddenly we have a long, long bull market.
0: It's pretty wild. Uh, I think it was Ann Maletti uh, over at Wells Fargo. Thank you, Paul, uh, who said that. Alan Zafrin, thank you too. Um, Good to get your insight here. Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager, First Republic Private Wealth Management, $113 billion in assets under management on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.